actually what can, you, can you sorry can you hold on one second i got it yeah, sure my cat just puked all over the floor oh my god okay <laughs> sure give no me problem. a second i'll be right back yeah Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to The Reluctant Agilist. I am in a brand new setup, first podcast in Brooklyn. I'm very excited for this. And I'm even more excited because Troy Lightfoot is back. Troy, thanks for taking time out of your weekend. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and Troy and I are making an exchange of information. He's got a class we want to promote. And in exchange for that, he's going to answer a whole bunch of questions I have about Kanban. So thank you for... Just transparency is probably best up front. Um, yeah, yeah. So before we get into the classes and starting to talk about the differences between Scrum and Kanban, we're also going to focus on metrics. Um, could you share a little bit about your background and let folks know sort of what you do? Sure. So um, I am a certified professional Kanban trainer, uh, and I can certify people as Kanban practitioners. There's kind of entry level courses. There's more advanced courses. Uh, in uh, aside from training. Uh, I'm a business agility coach and consultant, and I work a lot at the portfolio level for lean portfolio uh, management. Um, and I try to apply Kanban principles and practices to scaling because I do think it's kind of the secret sauce to making business agility work. Um, while the teams can really work in any manner they want, whether that's Scrum, Kanban, XP, or some variation of all three or whatever you do, um, Kanban applied at scale, I think, is really where the magic is. So um, that's what I am largely focused on. That as well as product management and, and helping uh, build great products uh, from a consultant side. So that's what I do. And playing video games. I like to play video games <laughs> in my free time when I have the time now after having a baby this year. You know, it's less time than I used <laughs> less to. Less time for, sure. for that. All right, cool. <laughs> um, so... I guess where I'd like to start is the question that I always get in class is what is the difference between Scrum and Kanban? And I always approach it from the perspective of they solve different problems. They look similar, but they're not similar because they're they're chasing different things. Um, And I wanted to see what your thoughts on that were and, and how you explain the difference to people. Interesting. So there's two schools of thought when it comes to Kanban, actually. I don't know if you know this, Dave, but maybe you do. I don't know. Every time I talk about this, people look at me like I have a third eye. So that's why I'm just prefacing it. So um, that there is the David Anderson school of Kanban, which is the... I think um, you have to say David J. Anderson. Yeah, David J. Anderson, right? (laughs) Uh, And he has this company, Kanban University, and he was kind of first to market when it comes to defining Kanban in books and in certification classes and all that. And he was involved in the creation of the Kanban method at a company called Corbis. And and there was a few people um, that he worked with to create the Kanban method of of ways of working. And and, um, off the top of my head, uh, two other people were Dan Vicanti and Dominica de Grandis. And what happened was because of his popularity or his business that people saw the way he did things as that's, that's what Kanban is. Right. Right. And in reality, at least from my perspective, um, uh, people like uh, Dan Vicanti and Dominican Negrandis have a different school of thought when it comes to Kanban. So David J. Anderson's school is, is, is heavy, heavily based on process. Uh, There are roles, there are events, 
Um, it's a little more like Scrum in the sense of there's a formalized process of like a framework, uh, if you want to think about it that okay. way. And, De- and uh, Dan Vicanti's kind of way of thinking about Kanban is much more based off of um, if there, there's a few things that if you're doing, you're doing Kanban, right? And you can use these things in any other framework. So you can use it by itself. Or if you apply these things, you're doing Kanban within Scrum, in Safe, Less, Dad, no matter what it is, okay. you can be doing quote unquote Kanban. And I just naturally, my experience is that I naturally gravitate toward that way of thinking because I like the concept of a meta framework where you just like pick and choose the best things that work for you, regardless uh-huh. of what the name is, you know? Okay. And so when I when I learned from Dan Vicanti, so Dan Vicanti has this book he wrote in 2015 um, which I read back then called Actionable Agile Metrics for Predictability. So I highly recommend that book. Um, and when I read that book, I said, this is it. Like I just totally clicked with the way his philosophy behind it. Right. And I saw how the things he was talking about that book applying even an agile team level was very effective. And I was applying it within a scrum uh, framework, to give an example. Okay. So after that, I, once he, once I found out that he was kind of starting this prokanban.org company, um, I was really excited about it. And I, I was asked to kind of interview for being a potential trainer and things like that. So, so that's a long way of answering a question, which I actually forgot what your question was, Davis. <laughs> so so uh, if you could remind me one well, more time. All so right, that, I'm so going to come back get... to the question yeah. a second. I just want to just yeah. mention one thing about Dan Vicanti. So yeah. um, Troy and I have known each other for years and he's been yeah. after me about Dan Vicanti's books for years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it was only in the last year I started to look at Pro Kanban certification and I was thinking about it. I thought, you know, I should read his books first. Yeah. So I read, I read two of them and it was like one holy shit moment after another. I was like, oh my God, it makes sense now. Like <laughs> cumulative flow suddenly is like, oh wow, I get it. Um, yeah. And so that was like, if you're somebody that's interested in this stuff, Kanban is, I mean, I would say it's basic structure is pretty simple, but um, the metrics thing becomes really powerful. Um, and I think especially for project managers who are kind of addicted to metrics, things yeah. like earned value and stuff like that, There's it's sort of like a gateway drug, I think, a little bit there. Um, uh, but the okay. question was, yes. um, how do you explain the difference between Scrum and Kanban? I see. Okay. So I've now I re, now I realize why I went on that uh, <laughs> rant. That rant. Uh, so um, okay, so the difference. So Scrum is a framework uh, for developing complex um, uh, products or solving complex problems, right? It's um, a framework in the sense of it doesn't necessarily tell you how to develop that work, but it gives you. Um, some guidelines to work with it and says, Hey, you should have these events and these events should go this way. And, and you should have cross-functional teams. And here's what that means. And you should have these roles and here's what that means. So it defines the roles, the, the process around it. Right. Okay. Kanban uh, as defined by in the Kanban guide. So if you go to kanbanguides.org, you can actually read the Kanban guide, very similar to a scrum guide where it's very lightweight, but just defines everything. Right. Um, and so Kanban, as defined in the Kanban guide, really only has three core practices. Okay. And if you're doing those three core practices, you are doing Kanban. And you could be doing it by itself, like I was mentioning, or you can do it with inside Scrum or whatever, or at scale, it doesn't really matter. So the three core practices really are defining and visualizing a workflow, okay, actively managing your items in your workflow and improving your workflow. Now, th- those things are very lightweight, what I just said. They have a lot to them. They're very but basically, lightweight, but they're very powerful. 
Yeah. If you're doing those things actively and in, in, for example, in the classes, we teach you how to do those things and like quote unquote best practices for it or things that you could try and, and actually implement your own work. Um, then you are doing combine you don't. So there's no concept of roles or meetings or events, right? You can do whatever you want around that. You can do, you can use scrum roles. You can use any other frameworks roles. You can use Scrum events if you want. You can use a different frameworks events. You can use no events. It's totally up to you. As long as you're defining and visualizing your workflow, you're actively managing your items in your workflow, and you're consistently improving your workflow, then you are doing Kanban. Okay. I want to say those three things in a simpler way. Visualize your work, manage your whip, get better. Yes. And define, we shouldn't leave out define because that's one, that's often one of the things that people don't do. So, you know how in Scrum, right, we have a definition of done. Yeah. And a lot of people use, even though it's not in the Scrum guide, but a lot of people use something like a definition of ready, right? Yeah, I do. I'm a big fan of that. Right. So those are defining pieces of your workflow, right? If you think about it, you're saying, when can something enter something and when can something leave, right? Yeah. So really, we're talking about doing that, but for your entire workflow, not just ready and done. Right. And so that's really so every so when you create a Kanban board, and this is something again we'll do in class, actually create one and things like that. But you create a Kanban board, and each step on the board has its own definition of workflow, its own entry and exit criteria, its own kind of acceptance criteria for that step, and that's part of your definition. Okay. So I want to kind of back up a little bit. and and mix it in with some of the Andersonian stuff, Andersonian stuff. Um, yeah. So one of the things to me about Kanban that's really appealing is that whole you know it meets you where you are. Um, Scrum sure. Scrum meets you where it wants you to be. <laughs> yeah. Or or halfway there. Um, but I really like the idea that if you're let's say you're doing you know waterfall, you could just map that whole thing out, put it up on a wall, look at it. And start to understand. This is this is my maybe pedestrian understanding of Kanban. You could put <laughs> sure. it all up on the wall, and you yeah. could look at it and start to understand where things are impeding your ability to deliver, and start to you know measure that stuff, and then maybe design improvements into it so that you can have better flow. Yes, that is that is a um, a fair assessment. But I would say there is a little bit of a different philosophy. The starting where you are thing is def- definitely a David J. Ander- J. Yeah. Anderson kind of phrase. Um, so here's why I don't personally like that phrase. Okay. And I'll give you my example. So many times, and maybe I'm, I'm assuming you have seen it, but I'm just going to tell you my experience. You can tell me if this is something you've seen. Sure. You walk into a company as a consultant, right? And they tell you that they're doing Kanban. And really all it is, is they just have a board with some Yeah, a bunch notes. of post-its on the wall. That's literally it, right? Yeah. That's starting where you are, right? Like that's pretty much, that's the beginning. We're just meeting you where you're at. The first thing you do is visualize your work. Okay. And for a lot of people, that's where it ends, right? So well, that's, then that's, I would say that's broke down. Starting, starting where you are doesn't mean ending where you are. Sure. Of course. But unfortunately, as we've seen, that typically yeah. is what happens. So what I like about this, the pro Kanban approach to uh, Kanban in the Kanban guide is the uh, the three things I mentioned, defining and visualizing your workflow, um, actively managing your work in progress, and continu- uh, continuously improving. Right. Those three things 
are not really, you can't pick and choose them, right? So for example, in the actively managing your workflow, you have to define exactly how you're going to control your actually how you're going to manage your work in progress, right? Whether you're going to use whip limits, whether you're going to, any any way you're going to go about that, sure. right? Sure. And you have to define that and actually actively use it. And then the second part about this is there are four kind of required or mandatory metrics that are required in Kanban that okay. people I typically do not see using when you walk in as a consultant. And those are whip, throughput, work item age, and cycle time. So and I want so, to pause you there for one yeah. second. Yeah. Because that was something in the Kanban guide that really struck me, and it was of great relief. Okay. Because all I'd ever heard about Kanban was cumulative flow. And I am still a person that when I look at a cumulative flow diagram, feels like I'm looking at a topsoil diagram. I mean, I know what it it says now, but um, the the other four pieces of information that you're about to talk about, they're way more valuable to me. I, I totally just don't understand why everybody's so hung up on flow when these other things are going to help you see more about what's going on. So I'll tell you a true story. One time when uh, my now wife, at the time we were dating, this was... Well, this is a good story. In 2016. <laughs> I know story. Okay. Six, six years ago, <laughs> we were dating. Uh, we got married in 2018. So uh, we had just moved in together. And I like to track stuff I'm doing, like my goals on a Kanban board personally. Like I have personal things I'm doing and I use a Kanban board. And so my wife kind of, I mean, at the time, my uh, fiance at the time started getting into it and she started putting her stuff on the board, right? And we were getting a lot of stuff done and she loved moving it over to the right and it was kind of satisfying for her. It was like right near where we ate dinner if I had this board. So anyway, long story short. So one day, just because I'm a really a geek about this stuff, right? I I hand drew a cumulative flow diagram on on the whiteboard. Okay, I drew it by hand. She wasn't there when I did it. And when she came back that day after work, and we were going to eat dinner, she said, "Well, what's that diagram?" And I explained it to her, and she goes, "This is too much like work. I never want to do it again." <laughs> True story. She never did it again. So I took something basically that was fun, fun. for her. Yeah, you ruined it with your metrics. And totally ruined it when I introduced <laughs> the cumulative flow diagram. So well, what, wait, what uh, was yeah. in, did the cumulative flow diagram in some way indicate that she was underperforming or something like that? Or it just no. looked bad? It just okay. looked overly complex to her and she had she wanted zero parts of it. Now, if okay. I were to explain to her how long something took, maybe the conversation would have been different, right? Okay. So- that's what it gives into those four metrics that we're talking about. And so that's my, my, my cumulative flow diagram story. If you have a significant other, probably don't draw it up by hand and ask them to look at it <laughs> around dinner table. Okay. So that's number one. Uh, okay. So number two is the metrics and, and why are they more useful? Not that a cumulative flow diagram is not useful because it is. But for most people, it's hard for them to read it they don't necessarily see all the value in it. So I use a cumulative flow diagram maybe for just the visualization of where the bottlenecks are and where the work in progress is stacking over time. Okay. And I can see like where the system is being starved, meaning like there's no work in progress in a certain state or it has too much work in progress, right? And so you want to, the idea of a cumulative flow is you want a smooth flow along um, along those columns or along that workflow. So 
Uh, you can do that type of analysis, but using it for anything other than that, I mean, yes, you can, but I don't really think it's that personally. Now, maybe other trainers would totally disagree with me, and that's fine because that's why we're all a big community or all different experiences. Yep. Personally, I don't feel like it's that valuable compared to all the other types of flow metrics which you can use. Okay. So let's go over these four things again, and maybe we can walk through them one by one. Okay. Uh, so number one is WIP, and that stands for um, work in progress or work in process. You can think about it uh, two different ways. When we uh, people, I used to teach it this way: a difference between the two. And now I stopped teaching it the differences. So I used to say that work in progress were, were the things that you were actually doing, like the things that you were actually doing at the time, right? Okay. And work in process is could be strung um, out. Everything that has started but not finished. But the Kanban guy defines work in progress as the number of work items started but not finished. So what do most people want, right? Most people want to know when something is going to be done or they want to know um, how much of something can be done by a certain date. Typically, that's the two kind of questions you ask, right? right? So in order to get there, we need to have a predictable system to be able to answer those questions effectively, right? So flow helps enable predictability. So speed is almost like a side effect of a predictable system. Now you can be predictably slow. That is true. But uh, so you can be very slow and be predictable. But I would argue that if you do the continuous improvement side of Kanban often, and you're thinking about how to re remove blockers and how to um, increase your flow, really decrease your cycle time. That's one of the other metrics right. that you will get speed and predictability together. So. You okay. had a question? Yeah, well, I just wanted to talk about predictability for a second. So um, I get a ton of people in class who come in and they they talk about how they want accurate estimates. And I'm always like, well, they're not accurate mints, they're estimates. They're gonna they're wrong by nature. People are terrible at that, just as humans, we're not good at it. Right. Um, but what they're really chasing is a predictable system. And the thing, one of the things that I really appreciate about this way of working that we're talking about is it's not trying to get predictability out of somebody who's guessing how long something will take. You're actually looking at data <clears throat> that shows you how work is flowing through a system and using that to, to show you what's going to happen. So like in Scrum, we've got this artificial time box, the sprint. And I just had a class this, this week with a whole bunch of people who just openly say, no, no, we always carry work over. That's how Scrum works. And I'm like, <laughs> no, but okay. So that's a predictable system though. Right. Right. They could, they could look at that and they could use that to see, Hey, this is totally jacked up. Why do we keep doing this this way? I see. So good, good observation. Good question. Um, a predictable workflow would result in a, in a, the ability to accurately forecast right. um, within a, within an acceptable degree of uncertainty. And what does right. that mean? That means that because it's not an estimate, it's a forecast, right? And if you can think about the weather, right? How do they forecast the weather, right? Well, they have a bunch of data points, historical data points, and they have a, a model which they use to forecast based off of those data points. And then they have a degree of uncertainty. And that's why even your weather app says 50% chance or whatever, things like right. that. So they're using something called probabilistic forecasting. Now, unfortunately, in the software industry or any other type of whatever you work in, if you're listening to this, 50% um, chance or 40% chance is usually not acceptable, a acceptable degree of uncertainty for most people, right? 
it would be like if you ordered a pizza, right? And they said, there's a 35% chance you're going to get it in 30 minutes or less. How, how comfortable or, would you feel with that? Or if you that? got on a plane right. and they said there's a 50% chance it's not going to crash. Right, exactly. So yeah, so the, the, the acceptable degree of uncertainty is up to the person. So when it comes to the weather, we're just, it's acceptable to us to take a 50% chance, right? Yeah. Like, okay, it's not the end of the world if it's a 50% forecast. For software though, most people would really like, now we know that 100% is, is just technically impossible to forecast 100% accurately. There's just too many variables, especially in knowledge work, right? Right. And, and it's the larger and complex your system is, the more teams there are, the more variables there are. So 100% throw that out. So then what's an acceptable degree of, of a range of a forecast, if you could say, right? Well, it might say, you might say, you know what? If you told me that we were going to... Um, get a certain amount of features or stories by a certain date and you were 85% sure based off of all your data um, and that was your degree of uncertainty, uh, maybe for some people, 85% is pretty good because even if we don't get it all by that date, it's going to be pretty close if you're 85% sure. Yeah, you're right. placing a bet. Right. Now you can go up to 95%, right? And you could even, if you want to, and obviously the, the higher your degree of uncertainty is based off of your data, the, the probably less stuff, quote unquote, you're going to get by a certain date or the longer the date's going to be if you, if you have a fixed scope, right? So the whole concept of an agile, right, where typically what we do is we will set a date and then we will flex a scope. That's like the first thing people want to do, right? So, okay. Yep. Uh, or the, the, the reverse of that is to set a fixed scope and flex the date, right? Yep. Because we know that if you, if you try to fix all three, that you're, you're pretty much just it's not going to work out very well. And also right. that's not really an, a, a more agile way of working anyway. Right. And so what you could do one of those two things in Kanban, you can use the same exact approach and you can forecast based off of either approach actually. Um, but you can use degree of uncertainties and not spend time estimating and getting people to improve their estimates. Why not just use real data and then use something called probabilistic forecasting? So there was a first book I mentioned called Actionable Agile Metrics for Predictability, the Dan Vicanti book. And he touches on probabilistic forecasting there. But he has a, another book called When Will It Be Done, which is all about probabilistic forecasting. And a plug for my class, of course, similar to the way the books are, are written, the, the first class, which is called um, Applying Professional Kanban, we do touch on it. But there's another class that we have uh, that I teach, which is all about probabilistic forecasting and metrics. Okay. Um, and we, we can link them in the show notes, I guess. But yeah. Um, so if, you, if you're interested in these topics, if you want to learn more about the pro Kanban way and how to apply Kanban, you can go to the first class. And if you like this concept and you want to go deep on the forecasting without estimation and, and using real data to forecast, um, that's that what the second class would be for. Okay. And and I've done an interview with Troy McGinnis on this topic as well. So I'll make sure to link to that. But just like to summarize it, you could say with a hundred percent certainty that I will I will die within a hundred years. I think that's I can forecast <laughs> yeah. that. I'll be uh, dead yeah. within a hundred years. <laughs> sure, sure. So if you sure. need a hundred percent certainty, you can get it, but you have to leave the window so wide yeah. that it doesn't really help too much. Right? right, but you can. And one of the things I remember from from Dan's books is like there's just different degrees of certainty, right? 
and you can kind of play with the risk that you're open to, right? Right. And it's all about how you communicate with the people who are asking those questions effectively, right? Do those people communicate in story points, typically? Do they communicate in scrum or safe terminology, if you want to think about it? Really, if you think about it, in your life, whoever's listening to this, if people are asking you questions, they're asking you about time or quantity-related questions, typically, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, hopefully, they're asking you about outcome-related things too, right? But often, you're going to get questions related to an output or a time or a date-based thing. So we can actually speak in these ways using real data. And that's the whole concept of, of the Kanban way of forecasting and communicating. Because um, it actually communicates in the people the way people think and like to speak, right? Okay. So if you, add, if, if you, if you had a, a, a mechanic work on your car and you said, oh, when do you think it's going to be done? And he gave you some, uh, it's about 80 story points worth of work. You, you, we'd be like, what the hell are you talking about, right? <laughs> so, uh, well, so story anyway, point, yeah. Right. Risk, right. complexity, and effort, obviously. <laughs> right. Well, so you, when is my car going to be done, right? It's just a human, the way we think, obviously, right? So we can actually communicate in that language. And that's what this common thing is all about, right? And one other thing I wanted to mention about predictability, and this goes back to the earlier conversation about quote, unquote, starting where you are, is, you know, Kanban, as defined in the Kanban guide, has those three, those three items we talked about. The second item uh, is called actively managing items in your workflow. Now, there are four kind of key elements to that, and that you don't have to do them all, or you don't, you could do way more than this. But basically, these are the typical four that are part of it, you know, controlling your work in progress. How do we control it? Actively controlling it, whether that's setting whip limits whether that's looking at it every day um, and talking about it, not setting weapons, but we're actually controlling it. It's not out of control. That's number one. Avoiding work item pileups and any part of the workflow, making sure that, and that's part of the cumulative flow visual that you can use for that, right? Looking at work item pileups, as well as your board, of course. It's very easy to do that way. Okay. Ensuring work items do not age unnecessarily. And you can use your SLE. So the SLE is a type of a forecast. It's your service level expectation. And that's when you can get something like, hey, we can say with an 85% certainty that any type we anytime we bring this work item type in, it's going to be done in 15 days or less based off of our data. That's a type of a pizza will beat your house within 30 minutes. Right, pretty much. And so you can you can ensure that work items are not aging unnecessarily referencing your own SLE, right? So for example, if I'm on a team and I'm looking at our board, our Kanban board, and I'm making sure that I'm looking at the, the work item age. That's actually one of the mandatory Kanban metrics. Okay. Aging work. And so I'm looking at the age of the items and ensuring they're, they're not at risk for passing our, our SLE. Because obviously, sometimes things are going to, but it's about actively managing it. It's about, it's about taking action. Making conscious choices. Yeah, pretty much. And then okay. the last one is um, unblocking blocked work, right? I see a lot of people where what they'll do if they have something blocked, they will say, well, it doesn't really count towards our whip limits. Now, you can choose to do that because you control, you define, for example, in Kanban, how you actively manage your item workflow and your own policies. But there are trade-offs to making those tons of decisions because what happens is you say, you know what? This a blocked item doesn't apply to whip limit. Or at worst, I've seen people move it off the board into a blocked column, its own column, right? I've seen that too. Mm -hmm. And what happens when you do that is you just keep bringing in more and more work and the timer for that thing 
somebody's waiting on that thing because somebody prioritized it, right? There has to be some value, although otherwise we shouldn't even be working on it. So because it was prioritized ahead of the other things, it's just sitting on hold. And if you think about it from a predictability perspective, the longer the items take, right? A one item takes versus all the other items, it's going right. to make you less predictable because your range of uncertainty is going to be wider. So getting okay. tightening, basically getting your cycle times to be within a, a certain group or a certain percentage of time, uh, that's what you want to go for to be predictability. It's like, if you think about- well, Wait, hold, hold on one second. I want to ask a question about work item age. I want to, sure. I want to pause for a second. Sure. So- I know that work item age is important and I know I've read case studies of product being built and like rotting on the shelf and um, there are concrete reasons why work item age is a big deal. I'm I'm concerned that maybe somebody listening, I want to just call it out because I, what you're saying about stuff in the block column or the block box makes sense to me because I can think of examples, but my worry yeah. is if somebody's just thinking, oh, we have to get them out of the block box because that's going to affect our predictability, then they're chasing predictability in the same way that other people chase velocity. Sure. No, I mean, I understand, but... Like, why okay. Why is work item age matter? Is it? It's more than just predictability, right? Well, every item that's been prioritized in your system, right, that, that, that somebody is working on should have some inherent value to it, right? Okay. So... There is a cost of delaying the delivery of that item. So the cost is whatever value you think you're going to get by delivering that item. Now, whether that's an item that you can get realized value right away by finishing it, or it's a package for a larger release, there is, even if it's a package for a larger release, there is inherent value in finishing it, even if it's not going to be released, for example, because you learn about quality problems, you learn, you get faster feedback from, from potential customers, things like that, right? Okay. So there is inherent value. And even if you don't get the monetary value for it right away, there is value in finishing that item, quote unquote, finishing whatever you, you define that as. Right. So, if, it, so if it was important enough to start from a business perspective, yes. Why are we just going to not let ourselves realize some benefit from it, whatever that benefit is? And and one more thing, correct this. So there's there's a concept called flow debt, okay. um, which is in Dan's books. I can't remember which book it's in, but basically what that means is the the four metrics. That, I don't think we went through all. We don't have to like. It, we, we I'll just touch on them. So we talked about work item work in progress, right? We talked about work item age. We're talking about right now. There's two other ones. Uh, one is cycle time which is really just the elapsed time between something has started and finished, really. That's your cycle time. And your throughput, which is the number of work items finished in a given unit of time. Okay. Um, and we're talking about the exact count of work items. For example, every week, my team finishes you know, between zero and 10 work items or stories or whatever it's you're velocity. doing, for example. Well, not necessarily because... Well, actually, let me say the part different. Yes. Is it velocity? It sounds like velocity to me. Well, when I think about velocity, I typically think about a cumulative number of relative estimates. Okay. Right. So, for example, we got 30 points done or we got yeah. five stories done. Right. And it's your historical look back. Like a velocity is a, a, a historical record of what happened, right? Right. That you can use to forecast using relative estimation, which is the traditional Scrum way of doing it, right? Sure. Although, that the Scrum doesn't say that you have to do that, but that's, so if that's everything true. was a one, then that would be throughput. 
right? It would be your throughput if you had a two-week sprint, for example. Yeah. It would be your throughput in a two-week time period. Yeah. Tr- correct. Okay. So throughput is the exact number of work items, not estimates, number one. So you're right, right about that. The, the second, part of, second part of it is, though, even if you're using something like Scrum, right? So let's take a, let's take a team example, and then we'll take one scaled example. Okay. So a team example, what, when you have a traditional Scrum team, who's, you know, majority, and you probably have the numbers better than me on this one, you know, being a CST, but a majority of the teams are working in two-week sprints, right, in the industry. And sure. I don't know percentage of it, but majority. Is. It's, it's so, majority, yeah. Yeah, so <clears throat> let's just go with that, for example. And I have seen it, you know, with many scrum teams where they're very comfortable with rolling over work sprint to sprint, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and there are valid reasons why teams might do that. And one of the reasons is because they treat the sprint as a delivery time box, meaning at the end of that time box, I'm going to try to deliver all my work, right? And if I can't do it because, hey, it's knowledge work and it's too complex and we're just doing estimates anyway, then we'll just roll it over to the next one, right? That's kind of like the typical thing that happens in the mentality of when people are using Scrum in that manner. Right. But the Scrum guide, I, you know, now I'm like really speaking for Scrum now, but the Scrum guide doesn't say, to treat your sprints as a two-week time box for delivery. It's it's a two-week planning time box, right? Okay. So the delivery can happen anytime within that, uh, right. for example. So even with a Scrum team, when I'm trying to teach them Kanban, and I'm not trying to convert them to a different framework, I'm basically trying to say, hey, I really think Kanban can help your Scrum, improve your Scrum process, to give an example. And so... What I will do is I will work with them and say, you should use weekly throughput, start there, okay, of work item count, story count, whatever you're doing, right? Yeah. And then try to uh, match as close as you can a similar number of work items finished every week. You can still do your two-week planning, right? You can still do all that work. Yep. But week over week, you want a a certain level of predictability. Yeah. Correct. And now what that's going to do is it's going to make your sprints from a scrum perspective, in my opinion, in my experience, much more successful because now you're not waterfalling the sprint because you can't. Theoretically, if every week we want to finish five stories, right? Let's just throw that out there. So let's say in a theoretical world, we're going to plan 10 stories uh, in a sprint. And then if we're trying to have the same number week over week, then week one, we would do five stories, finish this week two, do second stories. Guess what? We finished all our work. We completed our sprint goal and we have no rollover work in a perfect world, right? So even something as focusing on weekly throughput of finished items can help with your predictability, even in the scrum context, but how it helps in predictability it, from, a, from a Kanban perspective and just a time and forecasting perspective is... The more our what's called arrival and departure rates are similar or the same, the more predictable we will be. Because what happens is one week we we finish zero stories, the next one we do 12, the next one we do three. It's going to, if you look at your cycle time for those work items, it's going to be all over the place. You're going to have cycle times of like small ones, very large ones, and that's going to make your forecasting almost impossible. Okay. So actually focusing on your the variation of your throughput. Mm-hmm will help you become more predictable. And the last thing that goes along with that is your cycle times. So if you, again, if you happen to read the book or come to one of the classes, um, you will see something used heavily in these two things called a cycle time scatter plot. 
And in that scatter plot, you will see percentile lines. And so basically what it looks like is every item that's ever been done in whatever time period you want to look at, how long those item, how long those items took, and what the percentile lines of everything in that um, group of things, how long they took. For example, 85% of all the work items in the last six months took, you know, 20 days or less. And you'll see that 95% and 50%, kind of like the way that's what we were talking about before, getting towards the probabilistic thing, right? Yes. So what happens is focusing on throughput and reduction of cycle time and reduction of the variability of your throughput. And in tandem with that, that's where working, looking at your work item age comes in every day. Because if you're not letting things get too old, then your throughput is not just by its very nature, not going to be very variable, like, because it's going to be more consistent and your cycle times are going to be less because you're actively doing things to get things through your system, right? Because you're not letting things age. And that's where things like blockers come in, where that's the concept of flow debt. It's because now we want pretty, what I'm going to call it hijacking or yeah. Right. I want to call it tight, meaning like, it's the range of variability is tight. It's, it's very small. That's what we want to get to a point. Mm-hmm. So what happens is if something starts, the clock on that, the cycle time of that item starts. And just because it's blocked or just because we're working on 50 other things at a time, you see being hyperbolic, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Or sometimes not hyperbolic. Uh, that doesn't mean that the clock on that item has stopped. It's still going according to your cycle time metric. Sure. So what happens is, Something gets blocked and we just decide, you know what? We're not going to count it against our whip. Whenever it gets done, it gets done, right? Whenever we get it on block, we're just going to keep working on other things. We're basically borrowing the cycle time from that thing and giving it to another thing while it sits. Because it's still, eventually we're going to have to pay it back. That's the yeah. kind of the concept of debt. We're going to have to finish it. And all of that time, which we spent not finishing it and using for other things, we have to now pay back. So let's say that majority of our work you know, is done in eight to 10 days in, in a really tight range. That one thing, if it takes 20 days, is going to really throw off your metrics, make you less predictable, right? So, and the more that you work in that manner, the more and more the numbers, are, the data is going to be less useful to be able to use for forecasting effectively. Yeah. So that's okay. the whole concept of of managing so, your work in progress. Yeah. I want to try to Reek, I'm, I'm going to say this to you just to check understanding. I want to try to recap these and I want to try to tie them together and talk about Sure. Um, how they're useful together. So if WIP is how many things am I doing at any given time or how many yeah. things have we started and not finished? Yes. Um, throughput, the rate at which I am finishing things, which I would like to be consistent, right? How many yes. things am I doing in a week? How many things are we delivering in a day? Um, how long are things sitting in any one state? That's the part that I always get stuck thinking about the book, The Goal. Um, yeah, you know, like we started this, it's it's blocked or it's sitting there, and that's going to hijack our our ability to understand anything predictable. Um, and and part of understanding this is looking at what is the distance between when we start something and when we finish it. Um, yeah, which I think each one of these has a really close parallel to things a project manager would be paying attention to. Um, But it's using these four levers together to try to optimize the way we are getting the work done. Right. It's not just like, let's just look at, you know, people always in scrum, they always like, let's, they focus on velocity and they don't think about anything else. And any data point by itself isn't really helpful unless you look at the other, you don't have enough context. 
Right. And so the way I think about it is good metrics, which I would consider the combine metrics, good metrics, personal opinion, of course, uh, but good metrics lead to actionable improvement conversations. So, and they shouldn't be targets. So for example, does what we're tracking as a metric and we're discussing at our retros, for example, in a scrum context, is that leading to really good actionable improvement conversations? And I don't consider looking at how long our tasks took and then adjusting that for our story points and trying to have accurate story points. I personally don't consider that an actual actionable improvement because I don't really see how it helps us become really uh, achieve the actual yeah. real outcomes. It's really just adjusting our estimates. Okay. But at the end of the day, like you said, at the very beginning, estimates by on, on their own, by their very nature are not going to be precise. Right. So I think uh, to me, like that's one of the things that's so appealing about this approach. And it's something that I learned from doing personal Kanban is that mm -hmm. you become a student of the work and the choices that you're making. So like where, if it's scrum, like I'm trying to get the team predictable, like that's what I'm chasing. It's a, yeah. I would say it's a project management framework and it's aimed at getting a team predictable so you can run your business and plan things and get fast feedback and all that other stuff. Whereas this is maybe from a starting point, let's just understand what we're doing and how we're doing it. But it leads to those insights. And that's where these four, these four different things that you're that we're talking about looking at will not, it's not like my elbow hurts, but it's like oh, more systematic. You know, it's like looking right, at right. all this stuff together and saying, maybe that's the thing we should explore. And yeah, um I I feel like the way that you're working has a lot to teach you if you're open to hearing it. And I, and I guess to me, when I think about these metrics, they open my ears a little bit more. Yeah, I think they're great. They're very actionable. And this is the kind of stuff that we try to apply when I say we, people that are Kanban practitioners at scale, like okay. we try to apply this regardless of the scaling framework. Um, so a lot of companies that I work with use SAFE, for example. And SAFE gets kind of, in the industry, an interesting rap to some people. Sometimes it gets a bad rap. Some people love it. Some people hate it. You know, there's always debates on LinkedIn. And by the way, I can't stand that. That's why I'm not actually engaged in LinkedIn. I, I just, it's too much for me. But anyway, um, again, because Kanban can literally be applied to anything as is defined in a Kanban guide, uh, you know, SAFE says that you have a program Kanban board, which is like your agile release train Kanban board of like features, for example. It also says that your portfolio management has a Kanban board. And your if you have do solution safe, your solution layer has a Kanban board, right? So it's it's basically saying, and I, this is really not a safe thing, but I mean, that's what they say if you read the safe materials. And so I say, okay, if this is supposed to be Kanban, then why don't we do real, what I well, would consider yeah, real Kanban to it? That's right? the thing is like, when I think about the use of, and maybe it's just, I don't have a deep enough understanding. When I think about the use of Kanban and safe, it's because Scrum doesn't fit here and we need a board. Um, and it's not like, let's study all these metrics and optimize things at the portfolio level the way that you would if a team was using comma. I mean, maybe it sounds to me like you're trying to do that. That's not like a go-to response I would expect out of people. It's not a go-to response to be sure, but I think it, um, because it's, it's my opinion, because it's my opinion and every single person thinks they're correct. Um, <laughs> I think it's the correct response. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. But, but, <laughs> but I yes. mean, it does, <laughs> yeah. you, you, you kind of geek out on this stuff and I think it does right. kind of open 
opportunity at an organizational and a systematic level to see things and gain insight that you might not, you might not otherwise have. Right. And, and so I agree with you. So the, this is probably the last thing I'll say on the topic. Um, again, this is not really to promote safe at all, but even in the safe materials, they use this term lean agile, right? Yeah. That they use that. And that's not just a safe thing. You'll see that a lot of places. But what does that really mean? Well, what is the lean part of it? We know what the agile side means, right? What is the lean part of it? Well, really what they're saying, even in safe, is at scale, the traditional agile, typical scrum way of working is not as applicable. That's what safe's argument is at scale, like for things like portfolio management, for example, right? Of course, you could use scrum for that. But applying things from lean is very beneficial. Like that's what they're saying. So what, what Kanban is, Kanban is derived originally from Lean, uh, and that's how it was created, but it was created for knowledge and in particular software development, right? It's a framework and a way of working that's really customized for knowledge work, if you think about it. Um, and that's what probably most people are listening are doing, so. All right, cool. This was great. I appreciate you taking time for this. Um, Thank you. So Troy's got classes coming up. What are the dates? And, and I'll include links to them, but maybe you could... Give the dates and a quick, like, you know, rundown sure. on what they are. So uh, June 23rd and 24th. Uh, so 12 days from this recording, but I don't know. <laughs> but uh, June 23rd and 24th, uh, there will be a an applying professional Kanban class. Um, and in that class, you will learn everything about the Kanban guide and actually how to apply everything in the guide in your real life, right? And we will walk through some simulations we will do a simulation where we create a Kanban board and a definition of workflow and all that but through a theoretical example. And then we will take the students' real-life workflows and create real ones and that you can take back to your real work. And that's the kind of stuff we do in the class. So it's very hands-on, very actionable. There is like a handful of slides in the whole two days, to give you an example. Okay. Um, there is, that's a certified course. There is a test after. Um, and you do get a certification and you get a nice badge. You can put on LinkedIn and everywhere else if you want. Okay. Um, and then there's another course um, towards the end of July and it will be um, in a link. And I think it's the third week of July. And July that 21st, course, I'm looking at right. it on the <laughs> And that course is all about a deep dive into metrics. So we do touch on metrics in the first one, but it's it's a little higher level, but it's enough to that you could use to be fair. But if you really want to like do a, a deep dive on metrics and probabilistic forecasting, that's when you'd want to go to the, the second course, right? It's more of an advanced course compared to the first one because you kind of have to have your fundamentals of that pro Kanban underneath to be able to apply the more advanced uh, topics. You know? Do you have to take the first course to qualify for the second course or if somebody's like already screwed no. up on? You don't have to take the first course. It's not like you can't join. I mean, if you sign up uh, on Eventbrite, you're coming, yeah. right? But okay. I would say it would be very beneficial because I think you will miss out on a lot of the fundamentals if you haven't gone through the first course. I wouldn't okay. recommend it, although I'm not going to stop you. Okay. So, and just to kind of put these in context, I'm I'm assuming that, and I did an interview with Colleen about these a while back, but PK1, the professional combo course, that would be like a parallel to CSM, but in yes. the combo world. Yeah. And then this advanced class is not a certification. It is just like deeper, deeper skills. Oh, there is a certification. Oh, okay. 
right. Yeah, it's applying metrics for predictability. There's that okay. word, predictability, right? Uh, so yeah, that's what um, that's. It is another certification course, and you get more of an advanced cert about. That. Oh, cool. Okay. All right. So, the, and that's something like from an employability standpoint, that's going to help somebody stand out as having a deeper level of expertise. Not many people have that third, I'll tell you that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's pretty cool actually to have. But I would definitely recommend, um, whether it's from me or not, going to that first course. If you're thinking about taking the advanced one, definitely yeah. I recommend going to the first one first. Okay, cool. Thank you, man. And I'll put links to these in the show notes for anybody who's interested. And thanks. I guess we'll do another one soon. After Maybe after the metrics, let me can check back in and, and do a follow-up. Sure, I would love that. Cool. All right, thanks, man. Thank you. If you learn to work the old way, but the new way is what you need. My job's to make that switch from old to new. Suddenly-